0: And the microphones are here. And if you have questions, please let me know. Questions, thoughts, complaints, hypotheses. Oh, Donna.
1: I have, can you hear me? I have two questions. Everybody here probably knows about me, but what's the year of Jubilee?
0: The year of Jubilee was every 70th 70th year. Um, Well, there's many Jubilees and major Jubilees. But in the land that God gave to Israel, the land was perpetually deeded to the tribes. And so you could not really technically sell the land as much as rent it, lease it. So every Jubilee, all the property would reset to the family that it was from. And so that way, ultimately... Through marriage, you couldn't just have like the tribe of Issachar lose all of its allotted land. The tribal allotments for Issachar are fixed. That's why there's 20 chapters of land divisions in the book of Joshua. You ever wonder, why 20 chapters of land divisions? So they'd know who got what, deeds. And so technically, so so if you're buying it, the price of the land would decrease as the year of Jubilee approaches. And, And the picture is just as God redeemed Israel from slavery in Egypt and set them free, so the Israelites, every year of Jubilee, were to forgive all debts, release all slaves. So again, even slavery and servant and indentured servanthood was a temporary thing. It couldn't be absolutely perpetual. And so the warning was, you see the years coming up and you're like, I'm not letting him go. And you have an evil eye looking towards your, your servant, and God would judge you for that. that that's the Jubilee. But uh, if you do a concordance search, Jubilee, you'll find it all through the the books of Moses, but that's the basic. Anyone want to add anything to the Jubilee? Michael Card's got. I've got Michael Card's song stuck in my head now. You know, Jubilee. The years of the year of
1: Elijah one. You know, I was thinking of that. I was wondering if it's related to salvation because it says the year of Jubilee, salvation comes or something. So right. that's why I was. Well, wondering. It's, it's,
0: it's a picture. Well, here's the trajectory. It initially, when it's given, it's looking back at yeah. Egypt. It's looking back at how God, you were slaves, and God set you free. And so just as God set you free from your slavery, so you will, every so many years, forgive debts and you will extend that forgiveness. But we ultimately know that the Exodus from Egypt ultimately looks forward to the Exodus that Jesus gives, releasing us from the slavery to sin. So as it was instituted, they would have thought of the year of Jubilee as backwards-looking. We now know it's ultimately forward-looking to Christ and the cross and salvation. But they would have thought of it primarily in looking back to the Exodus from Egypt terms. But, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I, first I one. question. You got another
1: one? Yeah, I got another one. All right. I, I don't understand why God blinds eyes. or Does that mean he's given up on them? If he blinds their eyes and they can't come to Christ? Okay, the short,
0: here's the short answer is, if you go back to the podcast and listen to the purpose of parables, I spend about 50 minutes trying to deal specifically with that one question. I'm going to try to trace an under five minute encapsulation of it right now. But the fuller treatment is back in John 8, if you go to the Sermon Archive, the podcast, the purpose of parables. That's where we deal with this extensively, okay? So here's the short version. The argument is this. When you use the language of seeing but not seeing and hearing but not hearing, we're using Isaiah 6 language. So let's go to Isaiah 6. Um, Isaiah or Isaiah, however you please. Um, and it's Isaiah's commissioning. I'll just pick it up from the beginning of the chapter. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two He covered His face. With two He covered His feet. With two He flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim said to me, flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from the, with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sins are atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am. Send me. And I, this is a common passage I've heard when people are, are uh, ordained to gospel ministry. A friend of mine, this was his big passage. Usually they don't keep reading. when you If you go to an ordination council or something. So so God says, I want someone to go. I say, Send me. And he's prepared. He's, he's, his sins are forgiven. The fire has touched his lips, indicating to some degree that God's going to give him words to speak. And verse 9, Go say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed." Isaiah, God says, I'm sending you to blind and deafen people. Isaiah then says, how long, O Lord? Until cities lie in waste without inhabitants, and houses without people, the land is desolate, and the Lord removes people far away, until the Babylonian captivity, in essence. Or the totality of Isaiah's ministry. So, What's going on there? and So that's even making the problem even harder. Why would God commission a prophet who he tells them? I mean, this has got to be pretty discouraging. You're, you're getting commissioned by God. All right, the Lord has commissioned me to be a prophet. No, I'm sending you to make sure they don't hear, listen, or see. What is going on? I so want to make the problem as big as possible, but, but let's face, that's what God says to Isaiah. One way we resolve these things is we just look at the nice, happy parts of the Bible and we don't look at things like this. Um, we got to look at things like this and try to work our way through them. Okay. I think the key is on the language of hearing but not hearing and seeing but not seeing. Let's go a little further forward in um, in Isaiah hold on, I wish I had my sermon notes from that day in front of me, but I don't I um, let's just go straight to psalm one fifteen here here's in short what I lay out in the in the sermon on this passage that language of Seeing but not seeing and hearing. No, actually, we will go to Isaiah first. Sorry. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Zeb, find for me. They, they take the, the log, they cut it. Half of it they burn in the fire. Half of it they. Yeah, find that for me. My, my virtual concordance in the back row here is going to help me out. Because we've got to go there, and then we'll go to Psalm 115. Um, I think to solve the problem. Um, awkward silence. Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44, yeah. So, here's, I'll tell you the the first step in resolving this. In using the language of hearing but not hearing, and seeing but not seeing, it is employing the same imagery and description of idols. The way God mocks idols. He's describing the people like the idols they worship. So, um, the folly of idolatry, Isaiah 44, starting in verse 9. All who fashion idols are nothing. The things they delight in do not profit. Their witness is neither see nor know. They may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that it is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame. The craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth. They shall be terrified, they shall be put to shame. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool. And works it over the coals. He fashions it with a hammer and works it with a strong arm. He becomes hungry. His strength fails. This isn't a powerful God. This is a God that takes your power to make. That's the, that's the first irony here, is this guy's sweating away and he needs to rest, he needs to eat some food. This is not a powerful God. This is an impotent God. It takes this man's power to fashion it. Then the carpenter stretches out a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and makes it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man, with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak, and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Again, this is not a powerful God. This is a this is something fashioned out of a tree that takes time to grow, and you've got to tend to it and you've got to cultivate it. Then the ultimate irony, verse fourteen, he cuts down cedars. Or he okay, he plants a cedar... okay. Verse 15, then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. He also makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. He warms himself and says, ah, I am warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my god. You see the folly. I remember hearing a pastor once say, you know, that's a really important lesson in the log cutting because you got to make sure you get the God end of the log right with the the firewood end of the log right because you don't want to mix that up. Well, the irony here, of course, is you have to do all this work and you have to sweat over it. And half of this log, you cook your food on. The other half, you say, you're my God, deliver me. you ain't delivering anything. You're the one who did everything to it. It's the recipient of all of your work. And it only exists there because you made it. How foolish, Right? So then we get down into um, the next bit. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes. You get that that language again now? Um, He has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is their knowledge or any discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire. I baked bread on the coals. I roasted meat and have eaten it. Shall I make the rest of it an abomination? I fall down before a block of wood. He feeds on ashes. The deluded heart has led him astray. He cannot deliver himself or say, it's not a lie in my right hand. Now, go to Psalm 115, where the solution, I think, comes in. And again, this is the the speedy version of what I try to develop in a whole message. Um, Pick it up in verse 1 of Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory, for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, Where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, they have ears but do not hear. You see, you get that Jesus is riffing off of this psalm when he talks about people having eyes that don't see and ears that don't hear. Why? Why is that the description of these people? They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Now there's the principle. What is the characteristic of Idols, they have eyes painted on them, but they can't see anything. They have ears fashioned on them, but they can't hear anything. They have mouths carved into them, but they cannot speak. They may have feet, but they cannot walk. Right. And here we get the judgment of God upon people who worship idols is you become like what you behold. You resemble what you revere. And those people who who worship idols eventually start resembling them. So when Jesus says... These people have eyes that see and ears, eyes that do not see and ears that do not hear. He's linking that to this. And so why Jesus would hide truth in parables is a judgment, but it's a just judgment. It's not just God on a whim saying, you know what, you don't get to see. What he's saying is, what I was saying earlier, you don't want to see long enough and eventually you can't see. God will determine that. You don't want to understand long enough, eventually you can't. So Jesus is saying in John 8, these people inwardly are idolaters, these people inwardly are guilty, just like the people, the Jews of Jesus' day in Isaiah 6. If you go back now to Isaiah 6 with this understanding, which is what Jesus is quoting directly, Isaiah 6, right? verse 9, Go say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, their ears heavy, blind to their eyes. What's he saying? Make them like what they revere. Make them like what they worship. And this is the, you've gone too far. There is no turning back. You, 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 remember your, your mother ever used to tell you when you were a child, if you make that face long enough, it'll stick? This is the equivalent of that. You stick your fingers in your ears long enough and shut your eyes long enough, God may well say, you're never opening them up again. That's his judgment. And that's what Isaiah is being sent to do. Um, God's light and God's word and his true heat does one of two things it melts wax and it hardens clay and God's truth does the same thing it opens eyes and it hardens and sets in stone those who are in rebellion because it ups the ante it's one thing to be walking along in your uh, sin without a light shining on you and then Jesus shows up and you have to choose and so that's how you get these nice, religious, moral Jews screaming out for his blood, because his light is hardening them. His light is forcing them to double down. Um, does that make... That's about as much time as I have in the moment. Go back on your phone, you can listen on a plane, and listen to the, uh, the Sovereign Purpose of Parables, I think is what it's called, from chapter 8. Because that's... What I just did in 5-6 minutes is 50 minutes long. What? Luke chapter 8. Oh, in the, as long as you use the microphone, yes. Oh let me invite you to it.
1: Um, is it safe to say that God blinds their eyes and the hearing to try to bring them to Him?
0: No. Oh no. This is a judgment. This is absolute judgment. It's it's. We read in Romans one: people suppress the truth. People suppress the truth. People suppress the truth. Now I don't know where this line is, but at a certain point. You willfully reject truth long enough. God says, quite justly, you're done. You're, you're stuck. That's what you want? Fine. Have it. Have it. And, and we don't know where that line is. And one of the things, if we get to Greg, one of the things I was pointing out is in Luke 8, when he's dealing with Galilee, he's indicating they've crossed that line. Here, by warning them, he's indicating they haven't yet crossed that line. Be careful then, lest the light in you be darkness, is indicating there's something to be done about it. There's, there's a call to response. Whereas in chapter 8, when he's dealing up in Galilee, he's just telling his disciples, I'm speaking so that those who have eyes and those who have ears can get it, and I'm speaking so that everyone else can go right over their heads. I'm intentionally doing that. I mean, and, and again, we can't pretend he doesn't say that. That's what he says. And it's judicial. In Isaiah, it's a response to sin. So it's not just God arbitrarily being like, "Yeah, you don't get to understand." Rather, He's dealing with a conscious rebel who perpetually, systematically, and habitually is sticking their fingers in their ear, and at a certain point, they can't take him out. That—that's what's going on. It's a judicial judgment, and it's frightening. But God is nothing but patient. He is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. So, to those people, they've had a lot of opportunity and time before they cross that line. Greg, well, I was just going to say would you agree that Donna has a 92-year-old mother? Would you agree that uh, just because of her age, just because of her apparent rejection for a long time doesn't mean automatically that she has no chance of coming to faith? Absolutely not. Absolutely. Uh, I'm trying to to remember the no thing. Would I agree? Yes, I would agree that that only God can say when that line is crossed you and i cannot and as long as people are breathing there is hope and we call people to repentance we call people to faith we we lay out the gospel to them um and if someone if someone wants christ they can have christ there's no one there's it's too late you can, what i would say is you can't even want jesus without god's grace in your heart so we keep offering we keep pleading we keep presenting but we know in the back of our minds that the Lord, and all those passages, what you've gone too far, are the Lord speaking, not His people. I never see, I never see like Paul saying you have crossed the line or anything like that. That there is a line that can be crossed. There is a line of point of no return. The author of Hebrews warns us that there be no, that among us, chapter twelve, no one who is sexually immoral like Esau, who sold his birthright for a bowl of porridge. You know that afterwards he sought to receive it, but he was unable to because he found no place for repentance. And, and there's a warning in Hebrews. and Hebrews has this warning repeatedly. Be careful. The attitude that says, I'm going to sin now and repent later, maybe you won't be able to. You're presuming upon God's grace. God grants repentance. God's spirit gives repentance. And Jesus says, whoever you serve, you're a slave to. So you're going to go give yourself to slavery for a time, to some sin, and then just to think, I'm going to... We know people like this. You know, I can, I can quit whenever I want. Maybe. Maybe not. And that's the warnings of Hebrews. Now, we don't know what that line is. We just know there is such a line. And we ought to live circumspectly and fearfully knowing that. But no, Greg's right. We should never conclude. We've seen amazing stories of God's grace. I mean, if anyone crossed that line, you'd think it would be the Apostle Paul. He's hunting down Christians, making them blaspheme. He's got papers to arrest them. Apparently not. You'd think Nebuchadnezzar crossed that line. He ended up writing most of Daniel chapter 4, so apparently not you think the Ninevites had crossed that line. Yeah, apparently not. So there's a line. I don't know where it is. And I see exemplary examples of God's grace and mercy. So I never ought to conclude, give up on you, you've crossed the line. Now Jesus will say things like that. So he'll say, whoever blasphemes the Spirit, you're done. Game over, set match, you're done. But no one else do I see doing that other than God. The so, God can make those calls, I don't. Right. Well, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, I believe to be the willful, knowing rejection of truth. The Holy Spirit's shown you what is true, and you're doing you're doing what these people are doing to Jesus. I don't like that, so he's doing it by Satan's power. And, okay, you're done. So, okay. Yes? Uh, I just read in First Timothy, I think there has to be a difference that we can't see that God can. Sometimes there's people who are acting out of belief but suppression of truth oh, yeah. and some people are acting out of um, ignorance and unbelief and Paul says even though I was once a blasphemer a persecutor and a violent man I was shown mercy because of a- I acted in ignorance and unbelief and God gave him grace he mm. goes on to say so mm. right I think we should never give up any on anyone right. I think that the truth is that there are people who are blind and Right. Well, we want to keep both sides alight. We want to recognize that as long as... If you're not dead stand before God, there's hope. And if you... And God will never reject the repentant. It's never... Esau's problem wasn't that he was repentant, but God rejected him. Esau couldn't bring himself to repentance. The sacrifices of God, Psalm 51, are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. These, O oh Lord, you will not despise. If, so if you're... If, sometimes people wonder, if I cross that line repent if you're able to repent no you haven't if you can get back and your heart can be broken before the lord and you can return to him forgive me i'm you're, you're going to be good he will never despise that the problem for some people is they just can't um and he and that's the other side because if if we if we so and there's, a, there's a tightrope walk here of security and yet eternal security you can't lose your salvation and also these warnings i'm just thinking hebrews go to hebrews 10 and Hebrews 10 doesn't say you're damned. It just says, what do you think will happen? And it leaves that dangling. And it's meant to dangle. He doesn't actually say what happens. He says, what do you think we'll expect? Um, Hebrews chapter 10. And what you just brought up, Kyle, is, is actually right. The key here is knowing what you're doing. When, and that's where I'm saying knowing makes us culpable. It's dangerous to come to God's word because now we're responsible for what we know. And so, if you're not coming sincerely, you can be making things worse for yourself. Um, two, two weeks ago, we talked about how it's better to be immoral and without Christ than moral without Christ. There's a sense in which it's better to be far away from God's word than to be near it with an insincere heart because you're just reaping up judgment. So, Hebrews chapter 10, we get this warning. Um, verse 26. And the key here is deliberately. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there's no longer a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment, a fury of power, fire. Power? Did I just say fower? A fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God, profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, if you pay attention, the author never actually says what will happen to such people. He only says what they should expect, what happened to those who did it with Moses, and it's a fear. You don't want to stand before God. But he doesn't actually say what'll happen he just leaves it dangling there and I think that's meant to be the case the point you're supposed to think is if you're thinking I'll just sin willfully now it's okay God'll forgive me <laughs> yeah you need to watch out and, and check yourself before you wreck yourself that's that's the point um, so so that that's the balancing act but here the key issue is willfully knowing what you're doing I, I know it's wrong I don't care that, that's the most terrifying thing I can hear from somebody who professes to be a Christian. Yeah, I know it's wrong, but I don't care. That is the most, hands down, the most frightening thing I can hear. Because what you're basically saying is, I know it's rebellion against the sovereignty universe, but yeah, whatever. <laughs> yes, Elsa. 1 oh. um,
2: John 1 talks about walking in the light and in the darkness. Get yeah, that mic
0: closer, closer. If you're in the darkness. Yes. Well, light, light language is everywhere in the Bible, the, and light metaphors are everywhere in Scripture. First so John 1, not, not one nine, one six. 9, um, God is light in him, and there is no darkness. And if we say we have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie, and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, Right, and it goes on, so walking with God. So when we break fellowship with God, it's not that He went anywhere. It's we started walking into darkness. And the 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 solution is First John one nine. But if we confess our sins, or if we are confessing our sins, He is faithful and just to cleanse us from our sins and to um, forgive us from our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so the, the the issue again is confession, repentance. Confession is what you do after you repent. If you want to think of it like in an order, there was a moment in time. Or my heart sold me a lie, and I agreed with it. My heart said, "Let's just pick." I was, I was, um, I was angry with my wife the other day. I was, and I've dealt with that, and I've been, But uh, she, something happened that displeased me, and I made it known I was displeased. Oh, hi, babe. Uh, For those of you listening at home, she just walked in the room. <laughs> okay, um, and. And in that moment, what my heart told me is, I, I have a right to be angry, I deserve to have my will done on earth, and uh, you know she deserves she deserves a little sharpness in my voice, and I said, "You're darn right." I I agreed, I amend my heart, right, and then I bore the fruit of that agreement. I believed a lie, and then I bore the fruit of that lie, right. Oh, my will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and so, then I get convicted. And what happens? I, I realize I was wrong. And repentance is when I turn from believing that lie to believing the truth. Confession can only be done after you've repented because confession, the etymology, the word origin in English and Greek is identical, to agree with, to say the same thing. So con, with, bess, and in Greek it's homo, logos, to say the same, to say the same thing. And so when you're confessing, what you're then saying is, "Lord, what you said I should do is protect and guard my wife, and I didn't, and that was wrong. And I'm agreeing with God. I'm saying before what I was saying is, I, I you know, when my wife first rightly tried to call me on it, I, I, I know I'm a little agitated, but but you didn't do the thing I wanted you to do. That's not true. I mean, that's not a justification or an excuse, right?" Right? Men? Amen. Amen. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Okay, okay. Um, and so eventually, I'm trying to defend myself. Oh, just Stop nitpicking on the tone. Stop nitpicking. Uh, forgetting First Corinthians 13, that if I have not love, but have all wisdom, I'm a blanking song. Gone, right? So all those justifications and half-truths out of the way, I repent of that, and now I'm willing to speak the truth. And now the question is, will I say what God says about it? Will I confess my sin? And I'm only confessing my sin when I agree with what God says. So what does God say? What causes quarrels and fights among you? Your own desires that wage war within you. I wanted something. I demanded something. And I was willing to make you my enemy and fight you with my tongue and punish you with my words because my will is not being done because I was more concerned about my will and my rights and what I wanted than loving you. Okay, now I'm confessing sin. And I can't do... I'm just saying how confession presupposes repentance. I can't agree with God... Repentance is the shift from disagreeing with God to agreeing with God. And confession is then saying that. So that's that's the logic of it. Um if you want to get like a sort of ordering of how things work. Repentance leads to confession. Well confession presupposes repentance. Lee? You, oh no, Linda.
1: Okay. Is there or and if there is a correlation between the lesson today and Matthew 25, the virgins with the lamps, and the ones who didn't have the oil to keep the light going. Is uh, there...
0: Since, God, I, since God's word is whole, there must be some correlation. Having not studied the virgins with the lamps, I want to punt and say, can I get back to you next week on that? Okay. I'd rather answer knowing what I'm talking about than than not. I get get the implication you're getting at. I just am in no position other than to say, maybe. Uh, I will try to be in a position to say something more than maybe in a a short period of time. Maybe even tonight, if I have a chance. But but I will get back to you. I don't want to just blather on about something. It's bad enough when I blather on about things I sort of know. To blather on when I don't know anything is really terrible. That's a special (laughs) skill. Oh, where are you? Where are you going from? Oh, Donna.
1: You use the word "sincere,": Yes, in your sermon today. Yes. And don't you think that should come before repentance, not just say you have to repent? A lot of times I'll tell people to repent, but you've got to be sincere, there's repentance, and there's repentance without being sincere. So I think the word "sincere" that you use today,, yes. is a key word.
0: Oh, no, I, I I think so as well. Literally, the Greek is just simple, and the concept of simple is not complicated, not without guile. It is what it appears to be. It's not complicated. It, you know, and so rip, when you recognize that your motives are wrong, you it takes some sincerity to. Rec- I mean, it's the eye that needs to be sincere in, in the text. But there's some sincerity to evaluate yourself to recognize your motives aren't correct, which means you have a bad eye. But that will result then as in a sincere eye. So yeah, I'd say sincerity or honesty or simplicity or straightforwardness leads to repentance and comes out of repentance. So I'm looking at, I'm looking at what the Bible says. Some passage I don't like, like say I got to obey my 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 masters. I got to obey my like government. I don't want to obey my government because I don't like my leaders. Let's just say. And so I now I talk to people. They come up with also you know John the Baptist rebuked Herod and he called him that. You know Jesus called Herod that fox. And so I'm just doing what they did. Yeah. And you're coming up with reasons to not just obey the clear teaching of Romans 13. Um, when you recognize that, like, I just don't want to hear this. I need to, like, repent and say, Lord, I've been coming to your word rather than saying, Lord, show me what I need to do. I've been coming to your word saying, I'll show you what you need to say. And then I need to come at it afresh. Sincerely. Simply. Not with a bias. Not with an agenda. Lord, what, what do you say? What do you want me to do? Command your servant as you see fit. And by your grace, I'll try to obey. And that's the sincerity of sight that's required to come at God's Word. If you're just coming saying, Lord, whatever it is you want me to do, I want to try to do that if you'll help me do it. That's where James promises that if any of you lack wisdom, God will give it to you. You've got to ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like the waves of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. That man ought not to expect to receive anything from the Lord. Being a double-minded man and unstable in all his ways. But if you'll come sincerely, honestly, in faith, saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? You'll know. You come to God's Word saying, Lord, is this right to look or should we look to Islam or something else? You'll know. But if you're coming with an agenda, if you're coming suppressing the truth, you're, you're going to be in darkness. That, that's, I think, the point. Is that... Or did I just ramble off on... See, when I even... Just rambling. I think I agree with you. No, no, yes, no, no, yes, no. I agree with you, yeah. Okay? What else? I'll throw something out. Did you guys get the the notion of Jesus and the eye reaching? One of the things that was the eye reaching out and touching metaphorically. What one of the things that's interesting is in, in attempts to make Jesus not look like a Luddite um, or a anti-scientific moron, there are so many commentaries. I know he says the eye is the lamp, but what he really means is the window. No, he means lamp. Um, we're not. We're not metaphors. Look at things from different vantage points. And the vantage point of looking at the eye... We can talk about the eye as a window. The eye is not really a window. The eye is not a lamp. There's a way in which the eye is like a lamp, and there's a way in which the eye is like a window. Scientifically, metaphysically, a light comes in, your eye is like a window. But you and I all know what it feels like if someone's gaze burrowing into the back of your head. We all know that the way I look at someone can affect them. I can glare at, I can stare intently at... And so there's a very real way of speaking and thinking of our eyes going out and and like like superman's beams coming out you know affecting and interacting with and that was the common way of speaking metaphorically of eyes in the old testament so so eli's eyes were dim their ability to reach out was was limited you had this evil looking eye and eyes trained in adultery and all of that I just just want to make that point because it was was frustrating to me how many commentators are trying to jump over backwards saying, well, he doesn't really mean that, no, it's it's fine. It's a metaphor. There is absolutely a way in which you can speak of the eye in a real way, reaching out. I just want to make sure no one was, was tripping up on that or that was clear. Whoa, whoa, whoa. He got there first, but the mic was off
2: you could have made this very easy for yourself. You could have used the eye of Sauron in the Lord of the Rings.
0: Well, no. What you, what I could have done is, and I've got a list. I did a study. I mean, you, 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 guys should be, you guys should be blessed to know how much stuff I cut out of the message. I got a whole list of texts of the Lord's eye is searching to and fro upon the land for people who fear Him. And that's absolutely that picture of the eye of Sauron. I didn't want to compare God to Sauron, you know. Um, but that's absolutely the picture, is this roving, searching eye, searching out. And please don't tell me that that's a picture of something being received. It's a picture of something going out. Or even Peter looked at and set his face intently towards. Everything's about emanation in the metaphorical way we're speaking about that. So, But yes, the eye of Sauron actually did come to mind. I decided there's there was no... There was no Way that didn't sound blasphemous to compare God with Sauron, so I just dr- cut it out. But you're quite right. Quite right. Lord of the Rings. The bad guy. Fairy tales. Yes. Yes. Lit- literature. Sorry. Um, yeah. Yeah. Any other, any other thoughts? We've got, we got 10 minutes here. Come on. Oh, Renee. No, no. You did a microphone, Renee. You play by the rules. And Simeon wins. Thank you. For those of you living at home, there's a race to see who gets the microphone to whom.
2: <laughs> Simeon won. in one. Uh, I don't want to muddy the waters, but I think maybe Donna has a question behind her questions. Oh. If not, I won't say anything, but um, it's something I struggled with as a young Christian. I was in Australia, and everyone I met, almost, except at church, were atheists, mm. self-proclaimed nice people, kind people. So I struggled with, how is it fair... That they will go to hell when they die, right. and I wrestled with God, just like Jacob wrestled with Christ. Mm. I wouldn't let him go. Finally, um, you know, he he gave me a knowing. God is God. I am not. Mm. So it is not fair that these people go to hell. I deserve to go to hell. So the only thing I could do is say, "Thank you, God. I'm not going to hell." Was that part of your question? How is it fair that God chooses some and not others?
0: That That's a good segue, Renee. Because we now have a date fixed for the election and predestination series. March 12th will begin a four-week series. Um, and so we'll be diving into that more. Here, here's the point with this. What the Isaiah passage makes clear is those people that God so judges deserve it. They've 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 become like what they worship. It's not as though a capricious God just says, hey eh, you, I'm going to make that. W- rather, there's a willful, persistent, habitual, un unbroken pursuit of sin that finally a line gets crossed, and okay, you're 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 you want to be blind, you're going to be blind. Fine. You don't want to see? That's fine. We see the same thing in Romans. Um, the word for um, approved uh, is uh, but it says three times in Romans 1 I'm sorry I can't remember the name of a Greek word Uh, three times God gives them over in response and the third time it says since they did not see fit literally to approve of the knowledge of God so they looked at the knowledge of God and they said "Eh, don't want that God gave them an unapproved mind and that's where you finally get the Oh, you want to think perverse thoughts, huh? Here's a mind that does that really well. Here you go. You're going to love this. And it's the third giving over of God in Romans 1. You want to reject truth. Basically, you want to be blind? I'll take your eyes. Fine. Fine, I'll take your eyes. And in Romans 1, that's, that's the final giving over. But we're going to deal with this in, in, in about a month because we're going to look at this but the point I want to make today is that those who are judged are, are guilty. It's not as though they can say, it's not my fault. And what we see in Romans 1 about atheists, and when I said I'm an ah-ah-theist, is we wrestle with, you know, what about the unreached tribes? What about the unreached peoples? But the reason I think we wrestle with that so much is because we imagine them not as God has declared us to be, but as how, they want, how we want to think of them as. So we think of these poor, nice people that love their mothers and fathers, who love their wives and their children, who do good, nice things, and if only they could hear, they'd believe. And then we think, wow, how could such a mean and, and unjust God condemn such people to hell? God would never condemn such people to hell. They just don't exist. And so in Romans 1 and through 3, go to, let's close out in Romans 1. We'll get done here. This is what God says about man apart from grace. And we can look it square in the face and say we don't agree, but this is, this is what God says about the unreached tribe. This is what God says about the nice lady down the street. This is what God says about you and my children apart from Christ. Um, not only are they suppressing the truth, and we'll fly through this, they're suppressing the truth. Chapter 2, they know right and wrong. See, God is not going to judge anyone, Renee, for what they don't know. No one who never heard of Jesus is going to stand before God's judgment seat and hear, why didn't you believe in my son? No one. But Paul makes it clear there is a criterion on which God can judge every, everyone. And so in chapter 2 of Romans, because all the way from Romans 1.18 to 3.20 is God's indictment against mankind. We read this. Uh, in chapter 2, verse... Oh, Chapter 2, then verse... Yeah, 25. For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So he's telling the Jews, oh, you've got the covenant sign? That's cute. If you don't actually follow through and keep the covenant, it's not going to help you. So, flip that around, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And likewise, if somebody does keep God's covenant, but they're not physically circumcised, is that going to stop God? No. God will regard them as circumcised. Um, so then he goes on to say, then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. And that's not what I'm looking for. Where's the part on conscience? Um, it was higher up? Um, wow, this is not... For those of you listening, on this, this must be very unimpressive. 15, 15. okay. Um, 14, 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law... So here's, here's people without the law. They don't have Scripture. They don't have a Gospel witness. When Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. I get that. They're a law of themselves. God is not going to hold them accountable for what they don't know, but God will hold them accountable for what they do know. They get their own standard. Again, this gets back to the notion of it's a dangerous thing to know truth because all of a sudden you're accountable for it. These people don't have the law. God will not judge them by the law. God will not pull out the Ten Commandments when people who never received the Ten Commandments stand before Him. No. They're a law unto themselves. Even though they do not have the law, verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the seekers of men by Christ Jesus. All God will judge unreached people groups by is what they knew about right and wrong in their own conscience. And he will point to, in that judgment, where their conscience said, good job, you're good, and where their conscience said, you shouldn't have done that. And he will say, you knew. You knew. You knew. And if you look at the beginning of chapter 2, Lest anyone say, well, I, well I, I may have known right and wrong, but I didn't know there's a judgment coming. Man, if I knew there's a judgment coming, I would have taken things differently. I mean, it's not fair. I didn't know there's going to be a judgment. Chapter 2, verse 1, You then have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the same things. This is I, I, I use this tact, my witness, all the time. Um, have you ever gotten so angry at someone that you've hit them, yelled at them, cuss them out. Yes. Yes, I have. Okay. God will use that as evidence that you knew perfectly well that when law is broken judgment comes. Because you've judged other people. People have wronged you and you have poured out your wrath on them. So please don't tell me you didn't know that when you broke God's law, judgment will be coming. So God's they are a law to themselves. God's not going to judge them by Scripture. Moses won't be trotted out. But that judgment will still condemn every single person. So that Paul can say in Romans 3, his summary statement, and his purpose in in, in saying this is to make every ear attentive and to shut every mouth so that his gospel is seen to be the only possible remedy. Only possible remedy. Chapter 3. Um, Take it up in verse 9. What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Paul, at this point in Romans 3, thinks he has condemned humanity. And he's closed every possible door of escape. The first door of escape, I didn't know there was a God. Yes, you did. I didn't know right from wrong. Yes, you did. I didn't know judgment was coming. Yes, you did. Final door he's closing is, well, well, maybe my good works, outweigh my bad works. And and Paul reasons, I'll put it in the modern vernacular, um, Ron have you, have you gotten a... Ron Ludwig, have you, did you get a speeding ticket last year? Oh, you did, okay. Someone, someone raised their hand who did not get a speeding ticket last year. Sorry, that was poorly done, sorry. Um, Mike, Mike Evans. Mike, Mike Evans, did the DMV send you a thank you letter and like a $10 check? You see, keeping the law doesn't bring reward. And if you did get pulled over for speeding you were doing 30, 40 miles over the speed limit. No amount of years of law-keeping would let you off the hook. We don't let murderers go free just because they never committed counterfeiting or treason, do we? Every criminal could pull out thousands of laws that kept every day of their life. Law condemns, that's all it does. And so the notion of, no, my good deeds aren't my dad deeds, is, is nonsense. That's not the way law works. We all know that. So then Paul goes into his summary statement, verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous, no not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. In the nineties, it was all the rage to have seeker services and seeker services, and is your seeker sensitive. There aren't any seekers. The only seeker is God. There are no seekers. That's what it says. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave; they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouths are full of their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Do you notice how we're coming head to toe? The totality of us is sinful. Their paths are ruin and misery. They have the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. There's there's Paul's summary statement on mankind, which now finally lets him get back to his original topic. In one sixteen, you know that Awana verse, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ for in it. He finally gets back to that here in the wonderful but now of verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law and the prophets although the law and the prophets bore witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So Paul went through all of the door slamming and you're condemned and you have no excuse and you have no excuse and you over there no, and you got no excuse either to finally funnel and embed all of our attention, okay, then what is it? And here it is. So Romans 1.18 to 3.20 is God's statement of man without Christ. And so you got to factor that in when you're thinking about the unreached people groups and the nice lady down the street and your kids, and your in-laws, will I believe what God says about them? That they know God exists, they know judgment's coming, they know right and wrong, they know good works don't outweigh bad works, and what they're doing is suppressing that knowledge and unrighteousness. Or will I take them the way they want to present themselves, that they're really sincere, and they really just haven't found a credible argument? I'm right back to our sermon, right? The Jews of Jesus' day saying, look, you just haven't done enough. You haven't done them. Just give me just answer my question about the problem of evil. Or just answer my problem about dinosaurs. Or just answer my problem with, with um you know the, the the suffering in the world or or the or whatever. And we take them, oh, that's why you're not a Christian. Okay. And when when God's saying to my light there's nothing wrong with my light. The problem is your sight. The problem is your sight. And so uh, more and more now when people give me their objections. I just say, look, is this the thing that's stopping you from bending your knee to Christ? Is dinosaurs or the uh, concentration camps or the problem of evil or whatever? Is that the thing? Like, if I can deal with this, you'll bow the knee and become a Christian? I've never had someone say yes to that question. The more and more, it's like, okay, then what is the real issue? We're five minutes over. I'm going to pose in prayer and we'll break. Lord, thank you for this day. Give us grace, give us eyes to see, give the increase.